This episode includes discussion of suicide. Please keep this in mind when deciding if, how, and when you'll listen. For resources on these topics, visit spotify.com forward slash resources. It's June 12th, 1962. The morning sun's rays are just dawning over Alcatraz Island. Seagulls squawk as black waves lap against its jagged shores. A thick, ominous fog looms in the sky. Also known as the Rock, this formidable outcropping in the San Francisco Bay is home to the most secure prison in the United States, Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary. This imposing structure used to be a military fortress. The sprawling complex is surrounded by high barbed wire fences. Dotted throughout are menacing guard towers, each manned by armed officers. Within the prison walls, the guards are going about their usual morning rounds, one of the many they usually perform throughout the day. You see, prisoners at Alcatraz live a life of grinding monotony. Every morning, they are awoken at 6.30 a.m. by a shrill whistle. From that moment, their lives are regimented by the minute. They're told where to stand, when to move, when to eat, when to smoke. At precisely 6.50 a.m., the headcount begins. The guards sleepily go about their rounds, absent-mindedly counting the prisoners who line up with their backs to the bars. It's a somewhat pointless exercise. Though a few have tried, no one has ever made it out of Alcatraz successfully. But today is different. In fact, today will change everything. One of the guards doing the count in cell block B notices something off. There are three men who aren't standing at their cell doors. Frank Morris and brothers John and Clarence Anglin. The guard approaches cell 138 where Morris is held. He sees Morris is still asleep. Get up, Morris, he grunts. But Morris doesn't budge from his bunk. Warily, the guard unlocks the cell door. Prisoners rarely rebel like this and it's impossible that Morris didn't hear the wake-up whistles. Something must be wrong. Is he dead? Using his bully club, he shakes the inmate, shouting, get up. That's when Morris's head appears to fall on the floor. The guard lets out a cry and stumbles back. Then he forces himself to look at the head on the ground. It's fake made of some crude form of paper mache and covered in flesh-colored paint. There is even real human hair glued to the top. More cries suddenly ring out from the cells of John and Clarence Anglin. Decoy heads have also been found in their place. These men seem to have achieved the impossible. They have escaped from Alcatraz. Whistles and sirens immediately blare throughout the prison as it goes into total lockdown. Frantically, the guards try to find the men's means of escape. At the back of Morris's cell, a guard spots a large accordion case. He moves it to the side, revealing a gaping hole where an air vent used to be. Similar holes are found in the cells of John and Clarence Anglin. Crawling on their stomachs, the guards squeeze through them and find they lead to an unguarded utility corridor. From there, they reason that the men must have climbed up a series of pipes to get to the roof. Following the fugitive's path, they find a makeshift workshop on the vacant top level of the cell block. 
Scraps of raincoats cover the floor. Morris and the Anglin brothers must have made a raft. But surely the prisoners wouldn't have attempted to escape the treacherous waters surrounding Alcatraz in such a flimsy craft. It would be a suicide mission. No, they must still be somewhere on the rock. Racing against the clock, the prison officials scour the island but find no sign of the fugitives. Their cobbled-together raft must have worked. Multiple law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, are called in and a massive manhunt goes underway. Over the next 10 days, they conduct extensive air, sea, and land searches, but only traces of the three fugitives are found. A makeshift paddle floating 200 yards off the nearby Angel Island. Shreds of raincoat material. A wallet wrapped in plastic, filled with names, addresses, and photos of the England's friends and relatives. FBI agents on the case deduce that the men must have drowned. After all, the currents are notoriously strong in the San Francisco Bay's icy waters. If the fugitives weren't swept into the Pacific Ocean, then they probably froze to death while trying to swim to freedom. Or perhaps they were eaten alive by the great white sharks that are known to swim through the surrounding waters. Surely, the FBI believes, their bodies were simply carried out to sea and sunk to the murky depths of the Pacific. But without concrete evidence of the fugitive's death, the case cannot be closed. The FBI stay on the trail of Morris and the Anglin brothers for 17 years. The Alcatraz prison escape becomes a white-hot point of fascination for the general public. Many see the three fugitives as anti-heroes. Books and films are made about their daring prison break. It seems like all of America wants to solve the mystery of the Alcatraz fugitives, but it appears they vanished without a trace. Even the FBI can't find credible evidence that the men are anywhere, alive or dead. In 1979, the FBI closes its investigation and hands the case over to the U.S. Marshals Service, who continue to pursue the Anglin brothers and Morris for over 30 years. As the years wear on, the Marshals doggedly chase down every possible clue, every shred of evidence, with each false lead growing more frustrating than the last. Some may believe that we're chasing shadows, but our efforts are meant not just to perform due diligence, but to be a warning to other fugitives that U.S. Marshals don't give up because of the passing of time, says Marshal Dan O'Keefe. Throughout the years, no major leads develop. But then, in 2013, just one year after the 50th anniversary of the Alcatraz prison escape, the San Francisco Police Department receives a letter. It reads... My name is John Anglin. I escaped from Alcatraz in June 1962 with my brother Clarence and Frank Morris. I'm 83 years old and in bad shape. I have cancer. Yes, we all made it that night, but barely. It appears that perhaps that Alcatraz escapees didn't vanish without a trace after all. They've simply been hiding in the shadows, waiting for the right time to emerge At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups. 
this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of John Anglin, of the words he allegedly wrote as he lay dying. It's also the story of his brother Clarence and friend Frank Morris. Three men who defied the odds when one cold night in June, they disappeared from Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary. It's about crime and punishment and the few scraps of evidence that might finally solve a mystery that has captured the world's imagination for decades. I'm Estefania Hageman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. The letter from the man claiming to be John Anglin continues by stating that Frank Morris died in 2008, followed shortly by his brother Clarence in 2012. If John is truly the letter's author, he is now all alone, sick, and dying from lack of proper medical care. According to the letter, he'll trade his freedom in exchange for cancer treatment. If you announce on TV that I will be promised to first go to jail for no more than a year and get medical attention, I will write back to let you know exactly where I am. This is no joke. The letter is handed over to the U.S. Marshals. Instead of doing as the letter asks, they have the letter sent to the FBI crime lab for fingerprint and forensic handwriting analysis. The results are inconclusive. Since there is never a second attempt at contact from the man claiming to be England, the Marshals seem to write it off as a hoax. And in any case, the FBI concluded long ago that the men must have drowned. Some of the most powerful law enforcement agencies in the world have searched for them for decades. How could these criminals possibly evade them for so long? Well, you see, Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers weren't your average inmates. They achieved the impossible when they escaped America's most secure prison. Is it so hard to believe that they might have used the same cunning to elude capture in the years since? To understand why the U.S. Marshals and the FBI are so reluctant to believe the words written in John Anglin's apparent deathbed confession, let's take a moment to look at how The Rock gained its reputation as America's most inescapable prison. And how exactly Frank Morris and John and Clarence Anglin defied the odds when they became Alcatraz's first successful escapees. It's August 11th, 1934. 137 shackled prisoners disembark from a train in San Francisco. Their movements are watched over by 60 federal agents and U.S. Marshals. The security might sound like overkill, but these men are some of the most dangerous, hardened criminals in America. They're murderers, gangsters, bank robbers, and even some top mobsters. They represent the very worst the criminal justice system has to offer. Sure, they've all spent time in other maximum security prisons, but even notorious penitentiaries like Leavenworth and Atlanta couldn't tame these men. As punishment, they're being sent to a brand new escape-proof prison designed to break even the toughest thugs. Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary. It's one of the few island prisons in America. But it's not just the freezing temperatures of the surrounding shark-infested waters that keep inmates from escaping. Alcatraz is filled with cutting-edge technology that is sure to stump even the craftiest of jailbirds. 
Each cell block is like a prison within a prison. No cell has contact with an outer wall, making it impossible for an inmate to escape through a window or dig their way out. All of the cell doors work with a mechanical locking system that guards control remotely, preventing the possibility of key theft or lock picking. The steel bars that form the doors are all made of tool-resistant steel, so even if a prisoner is somehow able to sneak in a hacksaw, they won't be able to cut through their cage. But sneaking in any type of tool is impossible, as Alcatraz is one of the few prisons in 1934 to have installed metal detectors, a brand new technology. Throughout a 24-hour period, the guards, armed with automatic weapons, conduct 13 meticulous headcounts to make sure that every single prisoner is constantly accounted for. Even if a prisoner is somehow able to circumvent all of these safety measures and make it outside, they will still have to contend with a 20-foot-high barbed wire fence and guard towers strategically placed throughout the island. The guards within said towers will not hesitate to shoot them on sight. And if these measures aren't enough to deter prisoners from attempting to escape, the physical and psychological torment they endure for stepping out of line will. Being sent to Alcatraz is a punishment within itself. When a prisoner acts out, they are sent to the rock to be molded into more obedient inmates. Usually, they spend around five years there before being sent back to a regular maximum security facility. Once on the island, prisoners are guaranteed only four rights, food, shelter, clothing, and medical care. Corresponding with family members or even reading books from the prison library are privileges they must earn. Their days are regimented down to the minute and consist of monotonous tasks designed to teach the inmates discipline. If an inmate commits even a minor infraction, they can be sentenced to solitary confinement. But the very worst offenders are sent to the prison's dungeon. These cells have no natural light and the walls are painted jet black. During the day, prisoners unlucky enough to end up here are stripped of all their clothing and chained to the wall. They are put on a starvation diet of bread and water and beaten regularly by guards. Anyone who attempts escape would most certainly be sent to one of these torture chambers. Inmates often go insane due to these conditions. Some even complete suicide. Only a very small number try to flee the rock and its torments completely. In fact, just 14 escape attempts are made throughout Alcatraz's 29 years of operation. But only one, if you believe John Anglin's purported deathbed confession, is successful. John and Clarence Anglin have been inseparable since childhood. They're only one year apart in age, with John being born in 1930 and Clarence in 1931. But it's not just their closeness in age that bonds them. You see, John and Clarence stand out from their 11 brothers and sisters. They're the black sheep, mischief makers that are drawn to trouble. In the early 1940s, their parents moved the family from Georgia to Ruskin, Florida, to work the tomato fields. Florida becomes the England's home base, but as seasonal farm workers, they often migrate around the country to pick different crops. Each June, for example, the Anglin clan pack up and head to Michigan for cherry-picking season. There, John and Clarence become proficient swimmers impressing their siblings with their ability to brave the frigid waters of Lake Michigan. Waters with almost the exact same temperature of the San Francisco Bay which surrounds Alcatraz Island. 
Clarence has his first run-in with the law at the age of 14, after he's caught breaking into a service station. Shortly after, he and John began robbing banks as a team along with their brother Alfred. The trio often get sent to prison for their crimes, but whenever this happens, they simply escape. In 1958, Clarence executes his fourth successful prison break, this time from Florida State Penitentiary. From there, he and his brothers decide to rob a bank in Alabama and make off with $19,000. But the FBI are hot on their heels and soon capture the brothers in Ohio. John receives 10 years for the Alabama job. Clarence gets 15. They're sent to Leavenworth, a maximum security prison in Kansas. Again, John and Clarence try to make a break for it. This time, however, they're unsuccessful. As punishment, the warden sends them to the most secure prison in the United States, Alcatraz. John Anglin arrives on the rock in October 1960. Clarence comes just a few months later in January 1961. The brothers are put in neighboring cells, numbers 140 and 142. To their surprise, Frank Morris, an old friend from their days at a penitentiary in Atlanta, is held just four doors down from them. In temperament, Morris is different from the loud, sometimes brash Anglin brothers. He's quieter, more introspective. But the three men also have a lot in common. For one, like John and Clarence, Morris turned to crime at an early age. Abandoned by his parents at the age of 11, he spent most of his formative years in foster homes before getting his first criminal charge at the age of 13. Since then, he's been in and out of almost every major penitentiary in the United States. And like the Anglins, he's become proficient at escaping. While serving 10 years for a bank robbery in Louisiana State Penitentiary, he escaped, only to be recaptured while committing another robbery. For this last crime, he's sent to Alcatraz. There's something else you should know about Morris. With an IQ of 133, he has near-genius-level intelligence. And ever since he arrived on the rock, he's been scanning it for vulnerabilities, using his photographic memory to inspect every window, every vent, every possible crack in Alcatraz's impenetrable facade. These three men, the Anglin brothers and Frank Morris, are, by Alcatraz's standards, standard prisoners. They're not murderers or gangsters. And like former inmates, including Al Capone and Machine Gun Kelly, they have no name recognition. They're nobodies. Losers that just keep ending up on the wrong side of the law. Indeed, one could say that guards at Alcatraz underestimate them. This, as it turns out, is a huge mistake. By the time Frank Morris and John and Clarence Anglin arrive at Alcatraz, America's hardest prison is softened. The new warden, Olin G. Blackwell, is more focused on rehabilitation than punishment and gives the prisoners much more leeway than in previous years. New games become available in the yard. The peculiar addition of plastic knitting needles and yarn are added to the commissary, which, surprisingly, the men take to avidly weaving colorful sweaters and doilies from the confines of their cells. Under Blackwell's leadership, The Rock slowly takes on a more relaxed atmosphere. Patrols are rarely made during the four hours before lights out at 
cell inspections become less fastidious, eventually petering out into hasty glances. Music Hour, which was introduced back in the 1940s, expands with more prisoners gaining the privilege to order instruments. But while other inmates enjoy the games, knitting, and music, Frank Morris sits in cell 138 plotting his escape. On a fall evening in 1961, Frank Morris is absent-mindedly filing his nails. As he files, from the corner of his eye, he glances at an air vent below his cell's sink. Could that be his way out? No, it's too small. Just six by ten inches. He'll need to widen it significantly just to get his shoulders through. But maybe if he could somehow chip away at the concrete. Checking the hallways for guards, he clambers over to the vent, brandishing the nail file. With all his might, he scrapes against the concrete surrounding the vent. A few specks fall to the ground. He reckons in a few weeks he can loosen the grill of the vent and begin chipping away at the concrete. But how to hide his work? He decides he'll order an accordion from the commissary and use its large case to cover the hole to start with. Then, when the hole gets bigger, he'll make a fake grill out of cardboard. He'll also construct a fake head out of crude paper mache and place it in his bed to fool the guards on their nightly rounds once he's able to finally dig through the other side. The plan is almost perfect. All he's missing is a team. He'll need someone to act as lookout, and Morris knows that this person must be his neighbor, Alan West. After all, there's no way he'll be able to hide the digging sounds from West. He'll need to be roped in. He also will need John and Clarence Anglin. They're some of the best prison escape artists in the country, and their knowledge is sure to prove valuable. A few weeks later, he springs the plan on West and the Anglin brothers while they're in the mess hall. Well, says Clarence at the end of Morris's pitch, what are we waiting for? Let's go. For the next six months, John and Clarence Anglin, Frank Morris, and Alan West work nonstop on their plan. At night, they stand guard for each other as they chip away at their respective vents. They use spoons stolen from the commissary, saw blades found on prison grounds, and even create an electric drill using the motor of a vacuum cleaner. To cover the sound, they do most of their work during music hour, when West and Morris can drone loudly on their accordions. They create cardboard vents and paint them to match the color of the original exactly. Using soap, toothpaste, and stolen magazine clippings, the men build papier-mâché heads and meticulously mold the facial features before painting them a flesh-toned color. To top it off, they glue real human hair taken from the prison barber to the tops. Finally, after months of painstaking work, the holes are large enough for the men to crawl through. On the other side of their cells, they find an unguarded utility corridor. They're able to climb a series of pipes to reach the vacant top of the cell block. Now it's time to begin constructing their craft. Morris instructs the men to begin stealing as many prison-issued raincoats as possible. Once they have 50, they sew them together using a tutorial Morris finds in Popular Mechanics magazine. Then, once the raft is complete, they use a hot pipe in the utility corridor to vulcanize the rubber, making it stronger and more resistant to leaks and tearing. Once they're finished, they have a six by 14 foot raft as well as makeshift life preservers. 
After six months, they're finally ready. It's time to make a break for it. It's the night of June 11th, 1962. A thick fog looms above Alcatraz Island as black waves crash against its jagged shores. Every five seconds, its lighthouse emits a blinding flash, illuminating the sprawling prison complex below. Inside, Frank Morris lies in his cot. Thoughts whiz through his mind. For the past few weeks, he's been dragging his feet on the escape, spending most of his days scouring over tide maps, watching the movements of the guards, rethinking every minute detail. Suddenly, around nine o'clock, he hears a muffled voice whisper to him through the vent. It's John Anglin. Get your head, Frank. We're going tonight. Morris has no time to argue. He hears John already clambering up the pipes to the makeshift workshop. He knows the Anglins won't hesitate to leave him if he takes too long to follow. Cautiously, he crawls through his hole and covers it behind him with his accordion case. Once inside, he hears Alan West frantically scraping at his vent. What's holding you up? Morris whispers. This goddamn cement. Can't get the hole open again. West had made the mistake of wetting the cement around his fake vent grill the night before. It's now hardened and impossible to move. The men will have to go on without him. Now, Morris, John, and Clarence all stand together beneath the grill that leads to the roof. Everything has led them to this very moment. Frank Morris is the first to poke his head out of the shaft. He shields his eyes as the lighthouse flashes, revealing the harrowing trajectory the escapees must take. To the north and south lie the two main gun towers. The guards within won't hesitate to shoot if they see the prisoners trying to escape. But Morris knows that if they stay low, there's a chance the North Tower guard won't spot them. Crawling on their bellies, the prisoners make it across the cell house roof and to the kitchen vent. Morris drags their rolled up makeshift raft with a rope attached to his belt. They now face their biggest challenge, a 50 foot drop down a wall partially illuminated by floodlights. Careful not to make any sudden movements that might catch the guard's attention, they slide down a drain pipe and onto the rocky ground. Miraculously, no one spots them as they scramble into the bushes. Suddenly, Morris stops dead in his tracks. Just 10 feet below them, a guard doing his rounds walks past on the path that separates the prison from the shore. After what seems like an eternity, the guard moves out of sight. Now's their chance. They scramble across the path and bound down a rocky slope. Heaving sighs of relief, they reach the shore. Breathing in the salty, damp air, they look out across the San Francisco Bay. To the west, the amber lights of the Golden Gate Bridge twinkle in the fog. The San Francisco Bay's tempestuous waters lap menacingly at their feet as they turn their gaze to their planned destination. Angel Island, a large, verdant enclave located just 2.4 miles from Alcatraz. There, they will regroup before crossing the Raccoon Strait which lies between the island and the mainland. Once ashore, the men plan to steal a car and put as much distance between themselves and Alcatraz as humanly possible. Using a concertina that they've modified into an air pump, they inflate their makeshift raft. Their hands tremble from the cold as they work. 
Then at around 10 p.m., Frank Morris and John and Clarence Anglin board their flimsy vessel and push out into the dark and turbulent waters of the San Francisco Bay. Soon, their shadowy figures blend with the blackness of the night. A thick fog descends, swallowing them up entirely. Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers have vanished. Ever since Frank Morris and John and Clarence Anglin disappeared from Alcatraz in 1962, the question on everyone's mind has been, what happened next? If you believe the FBI, the prisoners all died while in the treacherous waters of the San Francisco Bay. Over the years, they've insisted that it's simply not possible that three men made it out of the water alive and evaded capture for over half a century. If you believe these claims, then the deathbed confession that the San Francisco police received in 2013 from the man purporting to be John Anglin must be bogus. But what if they didn't die while crossing the bay? Is there any possible way they could have survived? The answer is absolutely yes. Let's start with a grim statistic. Since 1937, 1,700 people have completed suicide by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, and at least two-thirds of their bodies have been found. Based on this evidence, it stands to reason that at least one of the Alcatraz fugitives' bodies would have been uncovered, especially given how extensive the search was. But nothing, not even partial remains, have ever been discovered. But how could they have survived the strong currents and freezing cold temperatures of the San Francisco Bay? What about the great white sharks? Well, it turns out it's actually very possible to swim from Alcatraz to the San Francisco shoreline. The waters around Alcatraz only garnered such a notorious reputation because prison officials wanted to deter escape attempts and bolster their claims that the prison was indeed inescapable. In fact, in December 1962, just after Morris and the Anglin brothers escaped, another prisoner got out. They managed to swim naked in much colder water, all the way to the shore before being captured. Today, group swims to Alcatraz are held every year with thousands of people completing the trip with ease. A nine-year-old even swam from San Francisco to Alcatraz in 2016. The Alcatraz prison officials, along with the FBI, most certainly knew that there was at least a possibility that Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers made it out of the water alive. But it appears that it was very much in both of their interests to claim that the men had died. By 1962, there was already talk of shutting Alcatraz down because it was just too expensive to run. Its status as America's inescapable prison was the only thing keeping the lights on at this point. But Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers shattered The Rock's reputation in a matter of hours. The escape was so damaging that Alcatraz was shut down less than a year later. The situation was also profoundly embarrassing for the FBI. As America's most powerful law enforcement agency, they should have been able to track down three low-life criminals with ease. Remember that Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers were not wealthy, highly connected gangsters like Al Capone or Whitey Bulger. Finding them should have been a snap. And yet, it wasn't. If they managed to survive, these two-bit thugs were able to stump one of the most powerful law agencies in the world for over half a century. 
Some believe there is even evidence that the FBI attempted to hide their shame by covering up evidence. See, one of the FBI's main pieces of evidence that the three fugitives didn't make it to shore was the fact that no cars were reported missing on the night of June 11, 1962. But in 2012, less than a year before the San Francisco PD received a letter from the man claiming to be John Anglin, a U.S. Marshal revealed that this evidence was false. A previously unseen FBI report stated that a blue 1955 Chevy in fact was stolen in Marin County on the night of June 11th. Furthermore, a police report filed the same night revealed that a blue Chevy with three men in it ran another car off the road in Stockton, just an hour and a half away from San Francisco. So far, compelling as it is, all of this evidence is circumstantial. None of it proves for sure that John Anglin made it out of Alcatraz alive and wrote a final confession to the police while on his deathbed. But there are some final pieces of evidence we haven't mentioned yet. Evidence that many believe definitively proves that the escape from Alcatraz was successful. You see, the truth is that Frank Morris and the England brothers did not quite vanish without a trace. In fact, there are a group of people who believe they have proof that all three men got out of Alcatraz very much alive. The Anglin family. They've claimed for years that John and Clarence Anglin made attempts after the escape to contact them. Flowers with no card were delivered to the fugitive's mothers for years after the escape. A leather horse figurine, crafted in a similar style to the wallets that John Anglin stitched while in Alcatraz, was sent to his brother Alfred with a note signed simply, John. And they swear that in 1973, the brothers showed up to their mother's funeral disguised as women, in spite of heavy FBI surveillance. These claims have been known to investigators for years, but the Anglins have yet to provide any concrete evidence that John, Clarence, and Frank Morris survived. All that changes in 2015. Ken and David Widner, the nephews of John and Clarence Anglin, have spent their lives in their uncle's shadows. Growing up, their family was constantly harassed by the FBI and U.S. Marshal Service. They claim they were followed, had their phones bugged, and were repeatedly questioned by both agencies. By 2015, Ken and David decide they've had enough. They are ready, once and for all, to put the issue to bed. Just two years after the San Francisco police received John Anglin's purported deathbed confession, the Widner brothers agree to present the evidence they have to U.S. Marshal Art Roderick. Roderick was the lead investigator on the case for over 20 years, during which time he chased down every lead, every shadow, every disparate shred of evidence. Even though he's no longer with the marshals, Roderick can't resist what the Widners are offering to show him. The first evidence Ken and David show Roderick are Christmas cards that the family received for three years following the escape in 1962, all of which are signed John and Clarence. The problem is that none of the letters are postmarked, making it impossible to specify when or where they came from. They could be letters from John and Clarence from before the escape. Roderick is initially unimpressed. The problem is it's hard to verify these came after the escape in 62. He remarks in the History Channel documentary, Alcatraz, Search for the Truth. In response, Ken and David pull a photograph out of a manila folder. 
the family have held onto this photograph for over 20 years, a photograph given to them by a friend of the family named Fred Breezy. The photo is grainy and shows two middle-aged men, one blonde, one brunette, posing by a tree. Both men wear dark sunglasses and flamboyantly patterned shirts. According to the Anglins, this is a snapshot of John and Clarence in 1975, alive and well on a farm they owned in Brazil. The ex-U.S. Marshal Art Roderick is taken aback. He's studied the faces of John and Clarence Anglin for two decades. Staring at the men in the photograph's features, he knows it's a possibility. He also received a tip in the early 90s from a man who relayed nearly the exact same story. He'd seen the Anglin brothers on a farm in Brazil. Roderick never followed up on it because the source lacked credibility, but this picture probably makes him regret that decision. The photo is brought to forensic facial imaging expert Michael Street, who compares the facial features of the men in minute detail. What he finds is earth-shattering. Street concludes that it is highly likely that the two men in the 1975 photograph are indeed John and Clarence Anglin. Street's findings seem to be confirmed in 2020 when the creative agency Rothko teams up with AI specialists at Identiv. Together, they create a facial matching system based on a deep neural network, or a type of machine learning algorithm. They run the 1975 photo through the system. The algorithm comes back with conclusive results. It's a 100% match. The men in the photo, at least from a technological perspective, are John and Clarence Anglin. As of this recording, neither the U.S. Marshals nor the FBI have verified the letter police received from the man claiming to be John Anglin in 2013. But that's not to say they've given up their search. The Marshals have pledged to continue to pursue the Alcatraz fugitives until they are arrested, determined dead, or reach the age of 99. If John is still alive, he'd be 91 years old. Maybe in eight years' time, John Anglin will emerge from hiding after a lifetime running from the law and finally reveal how he, his brother Clarence, and Frank Morris escaped justice for so long. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Geraldine Kelly, the woman who told the world her husband was killed in a hit-and-run, but never invited anyone to the funeral or even told her kids where their father's grave was. Instead, she kept a deep freezer in a storage unit and a dark secret inside that. It was a secret she held onto for over a decade until one day, as she lay dying, she finally told her daughter the shocking answer to the question, where's dad? For more information about the Alcatraz prison escape and John Anglin, amongst the many sources we used, we found Escape from Alcatraz by J. Campbell Bruce extremely helpful to our research. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Written and produced by Addison Nugent. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Rob Plummer. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 
Sound design by Matias Torresole. Mix master by Kian Ryan Morgan. 